There we go. Can you still hear me? Yep. I'm okay. sound, sounds good. Okay. Well, that, that's interesting. I've never heard of anything else that looks like that. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, well, it's, um, I've never seen any other, nobody's ever described anything that looks like that during wh- whatever encounter you, you know, a UFO type encounter. And, huh. and it's, you know, it's well documented and Heineck showed up and he said he couldn't explain it. And, um, the two people that were involved, uh, Hickson and Parker, they, they actually, um, locked them in a room and said, wait here for a little while. And they turned on a recorder to see if they were making up the story. Because they went down to the oh, police, wow. police station within, I think, an hour or so of the event. And all they got them saying was, this is the weirdest thing that's ever happened. I don't know if I can take it. What are we going to do? Or, you know, how are our lives going to change? Nothing about, <laughs> you know, that, that they were making it up. They just seemed genuinely perplexed and scared and, and uh, confused. And so, um, I don't know what happened to them. I wasn't there, but I think it's a, it's a, it's one of my favorites and a good solid case. And plus the alien looks like a Kachina. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's why it's my, one of my favorite cases. Well documented. Um, uh-huh. it's highly strange and, uh, and the entities look so strange. I think they had, some, they, there were some other ones there too, but I can't remember what they looked like. Maybe they didn't either. I think the only thing they remembered was, were these? There were two of them that looked like that, and they said they grabbed them underneath the arms and kind of dragged them into this um, craft or ship or shape or whatever you want to call it. Um, wow. I'm, I'm hesitant to use uh, descriptive terms with uh, UFO things because I think that locks us in immediately to a to an idea of something. Whereas if you try to be less descriptive, it it keeps it. Uh, hmm. What keeps it up in the air? Yeah, keeps it's, it uh, it's keeps too it open. Easy to, it's too easy to assume you know what's going on. <laughs> And, yeah, and use that as a description. That's that's true. I can see that. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. Have you ever heard the show? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Oh, okay. I logged in. I I went to look at one point, and I was on the website for for some time, but I hadn't. I didn't have a chance to listen to a show beforehand, which I really should have, but I didn't. Nah, you shouldn't listen to a show. It doesn't. <laughs> Because people, I ask people that, and they go, "Oh no, I haven't listened. I'm so sorry." And I think I don't expect you to listen to it. I don't listen to any other shows. I, I don't have any desire to listen to any other shows usually because I'm, I don't know if you have this, but um, I'm busy producing things. I'm not. I'm not busy consuming things usually. So that's pretty much it. I'm busy doing physics and yeah. doing my research. So I'm not really reading other people's papers. I'm not doing uh, looking at other people's work, and I'm too busy doing my own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me do one of my intros here. You know what? I was going to do the old one, but I'll, I'll do the anti-ETH one, which features uh, John Keel and uh, Jacques Vallée in the beginning here. We're with Ke- – how do you pronounce your last name? Knuth? It's Knuth, yep. Uh-huh, Kevin Knuth, Dr. Kevin Knuth. Yep. And uh, we'll be interviewing him about uh, sublight interstellar uh, – yeah, interstellar travel, not intergalactic, interstellar, in a uh, couple of minutes here. No, the – the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from comes from some sort of domain of 
secure information. And the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that, uh, that we inhabit the domain is also pure information. Are we, uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? It's Randy Mysterioso here, and uh, I won't give the date because we're just um, we're recording uh, not live. And uh, I'm here with a Professor Doctor Kevin Knuth from State University of New York at Albany. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Because of laziness, I'm going to read your bio from the um, from the SCU uh, site from the from the conference uh, where I heard your talk last month. Professor Knuth is an associate professor of the Department of Physics at the University of Albany State University of New York and editor-in-chief of the journal Entropy, former NASA research scientist, having worked for year, four years at NASA Ames Research Center in the Intelligent Systems Division designing artificial intelligence algorithms for astrophysical data analysis. He has over 20 years of experience in applying Bayesian and maximum ener- uh, entropy methods to the design of machine learning algorithms for data analysis applied to the physical sciences. His current research Interests include the foundations of physics, quantum information, in, uh, inference and inquiry, autonomous robotics, and the search for and characterization of extrasolar planets, which is relevant to what we're talking about today. He has published over 90 peer-reviewed publications been, and has been invited to give over 80 presentations in 14 countries. That's pretty amazing. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, uh, since the uh, conference there, have you has uh, has pe- have people kind of been beating a path to your door to do interviews about uh, your your talk there? Or has it been kind of quiet, at least in the, the UFO arena? Oh, it's been it's been quite busy actually. I think I've had three podcasts and an interview with someone from Popular Mechanics. So, ah, yeah, I've been quite busy. Yes. I wouldn't have expected. Well, maybe I'm uh, uh, ignorant, but I wouldn't have expected popular mechanics to be. Inter- what did they interview about uh, the, this this very subject? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Ah, I know you're a physicist. Uh, I don't. I think I know one other physicist. He's an astrophysicist, but I've never asked him what what uh, did you want to study physics when you were a kid, or is it just something that developed, or why physics? 
I have been interested in physics since I was very young. I My father had given me a book on relativity um, that he had read when he was young. Um, he gave that book to me when I was maybe in sixth grade, and I had poured poured through it and and really uh, really studied it you know during my sixth during sixth grade and seventh grade and became very interested in that um <clears throat> i was when i got into graduate where when i was ready to graduate and was trying to decide what to what to study in college it was really between computer science and physics and laser engineering i was that was a I graduated in 1983, so computers were just making their way into the homes, and um, so I was excited about computer science, but um, laser engineering was a big thing, and and I eventually really decided on physics. I thought, I really I really enjoy physics. I want to understand how the universe works, and mm-hmm. that's, that's, basically, um, that's basically what drove me into it. So, uh, but why, um, well, I don't know about UFOs. This is the, what your, your, your talk was about was, um, sublight speed inter, interstellar travel. Um, mm-hmm. and that, I guess that directly relates if you're doing a, you know, at a, a va- basically a UFO type conference, even though it wasn't called, called a UFO conference, which I actually liked. But yeah, obviously you're inter- interested in that subject. I mean, do you see a connection between your theoretical work with a uh, paper you presented and the um, observed characteristics of UFOs? I think you actually brought that up in your paper. You did use the observed yeah, characteristics. I talk, yeah, I talked about that a little bit in the talk. Um, I, I've i always been in, interested in interstellar travel, um, you know, in large part due to the fact that I was 12 years old when Star Wars came out in 1977 and and – and I think for young people today, it's hard to impress upon them how just surprising and amazing that movie was, especially for a 12-year-old at that time. Yeah, you know, I was about I, the same I, age. <laughs> I, I'd seen nothing. There was nothing like it. And it was yeah. really, really, really mind-blowing and, and really inspiring. So I have always been interested in interstellar travel. and um, And when I – was studying physics in in college i you know i really and was learning about relativity i realized that you know relativity really works in your favor if you're a traveler um you have several several relativistic effects such as the faster you go um the slower your clocks go with respect to an outside observer Mm -hmm. um and so this really makes a big difference especially if you're traveling at speeds close to the speed of light you're yep. you're you can you can view you can view such travels in two different ways you know you can view it from the perspective of the traveler or from the perspective of the person staying at home and so if you have a star a starship that's traveling you know from one star system to another let's well let's just say we're going across the galaxy so um so we're like han solo you know, he's been from one side of the galaxy to the other, right? And he's seen a lot of strange stuff. So, right. so, <laughs> so if you want to travel from one side of the galaxy to the other and you're traveling at very close to the speed of light, you know, from the perspective of the traveler, what they see is they see that links um, outside their spacecraft will contract. So links get shorter. So from the perspective of the traveler, the distance that you have to travel to get from one side of the galaxy gets shorter the faster you go. And so, in effect, you, you, when you're going close to the speed of light, you don't have to travel as far. So you can cover vast, you know, what, what the outside observers would see are vast distances 
um, but for you, they're not very far, and so you can travel them in shorter periods of time. Um, now, that's the perspective of the traveler. From the perspective and, – and from the traveler's perspective, their clocks are moving normally. It's just that the distances they have to travel are shorter. Right. Um, from the perspective of somebody on the outside, you may be on Earth or in another world in the galaxy, what they see is they see a spaceship traveling across the galaxy at very high speed. And um, they see the clocks on the spaceship going more slowly. So the, um, the people in the spaceship will barely age as they travel across the galaxy if they're going fast enough. So for those of us sitting around in the galaxy watching one of these spacecraft, um, it would still take – it would still take you know, something on the order of maybe 100,000 years to get across the galaxy. Um, and – but but those travelers, their clocks are going much more slowly. So for them, it will only be you know a shorter period of time, depending on how fast they're going. And and it occurred to me that interstellar travel would actually be possible, even if you weren't going faster than the speed of light. And that that was for me an important realization. The you know from science fiction, you know Star Wars, they have to go into hyperspace. In Star Trek, they have warp drive, and and the idea is you have to go faster than light to get anywhere. But but the the reason for that is to make a nice storyline. You know, you have to have the heroes right. fly from one system to another, go battle Darth Vader, and then they have to be able to come back home for dinner. <laughs> and 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 that only works if you can travel faster than light. Now, if you were to do interstellar travel, but traveling at relativistic speeds. You know, I, I could travel from one side of the galaxy to the other, and and that would work. But then I, when I came back to Earth, it would be it would be something on the order of 150,000 years in the future. So so 150,000 years will have passed for from the time that it took me to leave Earth and go from one side of the galaxy and then come back again. So while I could do such a make such a trip, you know, theoretically, the um it doesn't lead to a very interesting storyline because I get back to Earth and it's 150,000 years later. Yeah. So Everybody's dead. Um, yeah, everybody's gone. Everybody I knew was gone, right? So so that's no fun. So um, and I've and so a lot of physicists are, who have really thought about this are aware of the fact that you could travel from one side of the galaxy to the other or travel from star to star if you could go fast enough, but but they're also aware of the the this this time dilation problem. The time dilation works with you. It works with you if you're a traveler, but it also means that space travel is the same as time travel. So traveling through space at very high speeds is equivalent to traveling into the future. And um, and so the question always has been, well, while that may be theoretically possible to do something like this, what society would do it? You know, why would – we wouldn't send a space probe to a star system 100 light years away because that space probe will take – for us, the space probe will take 100 years to get there, 100-plus mm -hmm. years to get there. It'll take 100-plus years to get back. So we'll have to wait around for 200-plus 200, years to get the data back from the space probe. <laughs> That's no fun. Um, and so the question has been, while, while relativistic travel might – allow you to tra travel across the galaxy it's there's no you know there's no society that would undertake such a venture 
<clears throat> and, and one day I was really thinking about this, and I thought, well, I, I think it was after I had I'd read an article about SpaceX and the, um, you know, their their plans to colonize Mars, and and I think I had stumbled on Michio Kaku's site, and Professor Kaku was had said something about you know interstellar travel, and and he and he mentioned that yes, with relativity you could travel travel from star to star, but he mentions this time problem and yep. said, you know, what's no civilization would do this. And, huh. and I thought to myself, I thought, well, that's a bold statement. <laughs> no civilization <laughs> would do this. And I thought, and I just read an article about people, you know, the plans are that the first trip to Mars will be a one-way trip for some people. You know, they're going to send out, their plans are to send 100 people to Mars. And I thought, I, and I mentioned that to a colleague of mine, you know, a few weeks before, and he and he said, oh, nobody would do that. <laughs> I said, oh, you're very wrong. <laughs> oh, I had a friend that wanted to do it when they first announced that he sent it his name immediately. Thousands of people signed up for this. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people want to do it. And so then I reflected on Michio Kaku's statement that no society would undertake such an adventure. I thought, well, that's nonsense. Somebody <laughs> would do it. People are People are crazy. Somebody would do this. <laughs> you know, definitely. And then I thought, well, how, you know, but you wouldn't really want to make the trip alone. You'd want to either travel with friends so you could caravan. Yeah. Uh, that's one way you could do it. Um, but you could also do it in a more interesting way where, you know, I go off to explore one part of the galaxy. You go off to explore another part, and we just plan to meet back here. And Which has and to be course, very carefully planned. <laughs> yeah, you have to carefully plan the trip. And But if we plan the trip, then when we meet, we can actually meet back here and meet up with each other. But it will be, you know, some vast time in the future. And and as long as we're okay with that, that that, that would be feasible. So and – I, and I realized that if you had a society of people doing this, they would basically be nomadic. You would have to become nomadic. You would be – yeah. Not just not just nomads in space, you know, with with respect to location, but but literally space time nomadics, yeah, no, space time nomads. So they're they're nomadic in both space and time, and they just travel. And and you know, the more I think about that, I think, oh wow, wow, that's what a romantic notion. I think that would be really for someone like me that would be really exciting i think that would be an exciting lifestyle you know to travel from star to star and then yeah. periodically meet up with your buddies and exchange notes and say oh you got to check out this place this is so cool <laughs> okay i'm going to go there next where are you going next well i want to see this place all right yeah good. but it, it's going to be you know 3 million years in the future when you get there <laughs> that's right so it's 3 million years in the future but and so or whatever so I amount thought, yeah Exactly. Depending on your speeds and accelerations and all that, it'll, it'll, that will determine what, how far in the future you travel. But so then I thought, well, that, so this really would be feasible. You don't have to have faster than light travel. You could actually do this with sublight travel, which is in many ways more, you know, more reasonable with respect to our known the known physics. So right. you have to you don't have to posit wormholes or. Uh 
Uh, exactly. You don't need negative like energy to keep wormholes open. You don't need, you know, you don't need negative energy to make a warp bubble. And yeah, and but you do yeah. need a, a quite amount of energy to get your acceleration up and back down because decelerating is going to be. So you're going to be using energy to speed up and slow down. And you're oh yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of really horrific engineering problems. Yeah. There's a good reason why we don't do this, but the but it it really was. Interesting to me that that the rules of physics don't necessarily rule it out, and mm-hmm. yeah, and I thought, well, you know, the and the ideas, you know, our thinking now is that there is real possibility that there are m- multiple and according to some estimates, numerous civilizations across our galaxy. So, so you wouldn't expect. It may be that somebody developed faster than light travel and and partakes in that, but. But then there are worlds like ours where we can barely get across our solar system in you know in ten years, right? <laughs> right? And so, so there are, there's going to be an array. There's going to be a, a diverse array of different you know types of traveling technologies, and um, and somebody somebody along the way is going to develop relativistic sublight travel and and partake in that, and their culture would have to become nomadic. And so I thought. You know, when you when you want to understand <clears throat> when you're studying a phenomenon, what you basically do in science is you create models and you create predictive models. So you create models that allow you to make predictions. And and I thought, well, if we're going to think about um, extraterrestrial civilizations or interstellar travelers, you know, then we have to have some idea of what different types of travelers we could expect and how their behaviors or you know or mindsets would be different you know based on their experiences and so i yeah. so i spent some time really exploring this idea of of the of the relativistic travelers and it would, so it literally be an alien way of um, thinking and and uh, philosophy to us if you were if that was your your uh, experience not sitting in one place for the whole time, but basically being completely cut off from anybody except your friends and almost being godlike. And as you pointed out in your talk, um, essentially living for millions of years. Uh, not, no, not your time. That really struck me. I hadn't, <clears throat> you know, when the more you, the more I thought about this, this picture, I thought I started real, make, having some realizations that their experiences would be vastly different than ours. And, you know, we already know, you know, there are nomadic societies on Earth, and those nomadic societies are very different than the sedentary societies that live mm-hmm. in cities. You know, so already we yeah. know that there's Effects or social huge, structure there's there huge cultural differences there. Yeah. Um, but, but interstellar travelers that are nomadic are going to be, you know, you've got those differences plus a whole, whole lot more. And, you know, so one of these, these ideas that you're constantly traveling into the future um, – you know, I basically worked out what if what if you live you know if you what if you travel for fifty years, which would be conceivable with a human life lifespan, you know. And I just literally went back and forth across the galaxy, and and if you work that out um, <clears throat> with, I guess I was using for this model, I was using that you were ex- accelerations on the order of a hundred g's of accelerations, which which are. With respect to our technology, would be horribly unreasonable because accelerating over, you know, accelerating over 25 Gs would would kill anybody. Yeah. Um, 
And but, not much further over that. With its uh, equipment can't handle it either. I guess over what thirty G or something like that. Yeah, most well, I think even but uh, but even a lot of our current technology, like I think the F thirty five fighter can only handle about thirteen and a half G before its wings start ripping off. So, mm-hmm. so but I had just. You know, to get my head around this, I did made some back of the envelope estimates of accelerations based on um, some some of the more well documented UFO encounters. And um, so, for example, one of the you know with the um, Nimitz encounters. Yes, you talked about you that. You know, in, I, in the I, talk. I estimated accelerations ranging from 300 g to well over 2,000 g of acceleration. So. Based, so based on observe, observed uh, observed characteristics from the from the witnesses. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So so if those are correct, you know they're observing very high accelerations. So so what I did for my for my work is I just took a low end. You know I said well let's let's go down to a hundred g. You know this is less than what's been observed in some of these cases. So. Be conservative, yeah. Let's be a little more conservative. Now you could be even more conservative with that than that and go to one g acceleration. Um, which would be, you know, great for us, great yes. for you and me. Yes, um, you'd be creating and, and a case, gravity in the, from, in the ship. <laughs> you could get from one side of the galaxy to the other in about 20 years. It would take you 20 years, which, you know, that's that's a long time. But if that's what you really want to do, you can yeah, do it. At 1G, um, you say. Right. Uh-huh. But but if but I so I'd worked out some numbers for a 100G acceleration. And if you were to do, to travel across the galaxy at 100G, um, the let's see, I've got to refresh my memory here. I've got this, I've got my talks right here, so I can remind myself. You basically can go from one side of the galaxy to the other in less than four months. If you, <laughs> if you accelerate at 100 g halfway and then decelerate at 100 g the other half, it will take you four months to get from one side of the galaxy to the other. Right. Oh, you have so, it here, yeah, like 110 days or something like that. Yes, that's about right. And um, so now that you're talking that this is something on the order of about 80,000 light years away, so you're talking about you know moving 80,000 years into the future, but it's only going to take you four months to do this. So, so now if you you do, you do the math, and and so one of the calculations I you know so if you're we can round up say let's say you go about 100,000 light years in four months, so. You know, there's three, four months in a year, so you can go about 300,000 years into the future every year. Hmm. And so in five years, you're talking you're talking about, what is that, 1.5 million? Yeah, yeah, that's about 1.5 million years into the future. Yeah. And so now you go to from five years to 60 years. That's a factor of 12. You can travel 12 million years into the future. So if you travel for at these accelerations for for 60 years – and travel across the galaxy you would you would literally accelerate you know move move yourself forward into the future um, 12 million years so so for people in the galaxy looking at you you would be 12 million years old <laughs> which is yeah. which is really pretty amazing but then but then so then all sorts of other things then fall into place you know you yeah i found those fascinating too yeah you could do some cool things if you live 12 million years. You could watch. You could watch societies evolve, and more than that, you could watch species evolve. You know, so 
you know, if you came to Earth 12 million years ago, that was your first trip, you know, there weren't people here. There were no humans. And so you literally would see a world without humans. But by the time you were 50 or so, 50 years old or so, there would be humans. And and by the time you were 60 years old and came back to Earth, they would be there would be humans in cities and we'd have gone to the moon and, you know, things like this. And you, you could have watched that happen. You know, not continuously, but you would get snapshots, you mm-hmm. know, through through your lifetime. And and so a biologist would view a biologist who lived in one of these societies would study life. They would study evolution in a way that we can't really study evolution, and so they would have a very different perspective. Uh, you could study evolution. Heck, you could do experiments with evolution, right? Yeah. <laughs> you could experiment with species and see what happens and you know and things like this you know of course they're yeah you could you could go away for you know two weeks and come back and see what happened in however many years hundreds of years that's right that's right so a biologist a biologist would view life on you know life on one of these worlds very differently than than we do um there's also you know i i'm off it when talking to friends or people about this, I'm often rather amused when people say, "Well, why don't they just land on the White House lawn and make contact?" <laughs> and and I and I never know how to respond because I always have several things pop into my head. You know, the first one is, "Why why the White House lawn? Really, the White House is the place that you would go to. That, you know, that's really the place that <laughs> speaks for all of humanity. Are you kidding me?" <laughs> and then uh, you know, I and. If you came to this world, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be obvious where to go to make contact. Not you know? at all. To, no. to be honest, Devil's Tower would be just as good of a place as anywhere else. <laughs> so, it looks momentous enough or monumental enough. Maybe we should go there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, why not? So, um, you know, so that's sort of, those are some of my first questions. But then, but then once I had this perspective, well, if you were a relativistic traveler like this, then. There's really no point in making contact with the locals because the next time you come back, they're all going to be gone. And, you know, depending on how far you travel, of course, you know, but, but, yeah. but how far and how fast? It's very hard to make friends, you know, who are, <laughs> who, who are, who are homebodies <laughs> because they're going, you're, you're rapidly rushing into the future. And so, so there's really no point to make friends. And, for for this type of society and um you know and there might be a reason you know if if a planet like earth is a place where you like to visit for whatever reason uh, you like it here <laughs> you you know you value the water you you know or the oxygen or you know or it's it's just strategically located in the galaxy for some reason you know there's a lot of possible reasons somebody might repeatedly visit earth but but if you did so and you had a local civilization that was rapidly advancing, especially a warlike civilization like ours, you might want to keep tabs on the military capabilities of the society because you don't want to show up next time and find yourself facing a, a space force, right? <laughs> and um, yes. a armed space force, that would be, be kind of scary. So you'd want to be prepared or have some knowledge about how the society is progressing. So, so keeping tabs on the military capabilities of the species wouldn't be unreasonable at all. And um, 
I think and I'm you, kind of go ahead. picking some of these. I'm picking some of these perspectives to. Yeah, the one I, that uh, I feel like I, aspects of the UFO mythology. You know, the whole. Yeah, you know, you'll things, probably get to I'll it. call it a mythology because we haven't studied it carefully. Right. But um. <clears throat> So you did mention I, I thought that was interesting. I think you sort of uh, alluded to it here was that uh, uh, we see something and then, you know, you, you see practically the same thing in 20, 30 years later. But who, if it's the same people, they were here last week. That's from right. their perspective. And we're and the other thing you pointed out in your paper, which I hadn't remembered that you said that it also kind of uh, gives a good reason why this has been happening throughout recorded history. And doesn't seem to have changed that much, just the descriptions of it, because, you know, if you if you break down what people say, they're basically descriptions of the same things, round things, glowing things, all that. Yeah. Yeah, I've often had, had colleagues ask me, well, if these things are alien spacecraft and they've been witnessed for thousands of years, then why hasn't their technology seemed to have changed? Why, why <laughs> do people report the same types of craft a thousand years ago that they do now, you would imagine that an advanced race would be advancing technologically even faster. Or than, even 50 than years would. ago. Yeah. And, um, and I always thought that was a good argument. But now with this, with this in mind, you, you then get a different perspective. Those, those craft that were witnessed you know, 50 years ago or even a thousand years ago could be the same, very same craft with the same individuals. And... Um, and so I, you know, in doing some simulations, I actually started simulating travelers to see how easy it was to, to hook up with each, so they could, you know, have meetup points. How easy was that to prearrange them or to set up a network so that the chance of meeting up is highly probable? And um, You have so to be very exact about how you meet, but you uh, proposed a system for doing this, or at least a system that is spread out so that there's more chance for meeting. Right. Yeah. And that's what I was looking into. Is there a way to have this, have a few constraints that allow you to self-organize a, a, a network where you have a high probability for meetups? And, um, and I think there is ways, there are ways to do this. And now what, what surprised me in just trying this, I, I ran some simulations with a hundred travelers and I ran the simulations for about 20 or about 2030 years. And the amount of time that each of the travelers experienced basically ranged from six months to two years. So, so the dispersion wasn't that great. They were, they all, they all experienced 2000 years of galaxy time, you know, within anywhere from a half a year to two years. So that it's very, fe it seems very feasible. So I, uh do you see that, uh, you know, because you had a uh, chart there. I don't know if it was your chart because you talked about uh, first the Drake equation and the Kardashev scale about uh, uh, harnessing energy. But you also had a uh, scale there of, of type of spacefaring civilizations and you kind of placed us on the, you know, sort of on the low end of that. Um, maybe you can explain oh, that this, a little bit. The space traveler classes. Yeah, I, I came up with these classes. Based I thought on, that was yours. There were no references on there. It's like, oh, this must be actually uh, Kevin's uh, idea. Yeah, you can call it the Knuth scale. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> All right. There know. you go. It's been patented. <laughs> I don't know. But um, <laughs> but I basically came up with classes that um, that range from the, the low end I called homeworld bound. So these are these are two classes. Class zero were, were – basically a civilization that's unable or unwilling to reach orbital speeds. 
and then class one could orbit their home world and visit accompanying moons, but they're basically just still local around their world. They don't leave their world very much. Um, the next class was system bound. Mm-hmm. And I separated this into class 2A and 2B. 2A can traverse their star system and visit its worlds with speeds on the order of orbital velocities. That's basically where we sit at this right. point. Less class than 0.01 um, light speed, C. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and then class B, you can traverse your star system and visit its worlds with speeds greater than orbital speeds, but less than 1% the speed of light. So mm. you can go very fast. You can basically get to Jupiter in a matter of days rather than rather than months. Um, but you still aren't going fast enough to reach the nearest stars. And then the next classes had to do with was class three, which was near interstellar. These are societies that can reach nearby stars within five light years or so and basically in tens of years with speeds ranging from 1% the speed of light to 10% the speed of light. And then class 3B, you can reach stars with speeds ranging from 10% the speed of light to three to 30% the speed of light. Mm-hmm. And I picked some of these cutoffs because the um, there are some engineering challenges. So once you… Yes, which you talked you about, which I found fascinating. And once you reach 30% the speed of light, um, if you're below 30% the speed of light, then a titanium or aluminum hull of about one to two centimeters in thickness provides sufficient protection against the oncoming flow of nucleonic radiation. Um, basically, the, the hydrogen gas just hanging out in interstellar space, you know, space isn't really empty. You've got about one atom of hydrogen gas per cubic meter. And so it's mostly empty, and um, but you're going to be flying at this hydrogen gas, you know, at close to at at 30% the speed of light. So this hydrogen gas to you looks like a cosmic ray, and so you've got to be able to protect against that energy. Um, by yeah, the time not to mention if you hit a dot of sand, which will probably destroy your ship. Right. So that's the next one. So you need to worry about micrometeorites, which would be basically sand. Um, so you would have deterioration of a frontal part of a hull or a frontal shield by micrometeorite bombardment would, would basically happen at a rate of about 100 relativistic dust particles per square meter per second, faster than 30% the speed of light. So once you get going the 30% the speed of light, the game changes. You have to really, um, you have to really depend on your engineering skills to be able to shield against against um, flying into stuff or maybe um, create some kind of field around the ship that would deflect it i don't know yeah there are some possibilities you could you could um for charged particles you could use magnetic fields for shielding mm-hmm. that would be helpful and for you know for something like iron micrometeorites you could use an electric field that would be useful too you'd have any induced eddy currents which would create magnetic fields that would repel them mm. So that's a possibility too. Um, the next class is relativistic interstellar. Uh, class 4A, I called it, was traverse. They you basically can traverse interstellar distances with speeds between 30% the speed of light and 60% the speed of light. Um, once you get above about 70% the speed of light, you have um, you start creating basically the collisions between a particle and space hitting your spacecraft um, 
like a nucleus, atomic nucleus in space hitting your spacecraft, hitting a nucleus in your spacecraft would be of sufficient energy that it'll actually create particles like in a particle collider. Mm, right. And so you're going to start creating particles at about 70% the speed of light. <laughs> you're basically, you know, you're basically created, you're basically created a chair in a particle accelerator. Yeah, yeah, you're you're, yeah. You're, you're, you've created a linear accelerator in space. That's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have to up your energy, up, up your engineering skills again after 60% the speed of light, which is why I separated that into class 4A and 4B. So 4B, you basically are those who can travel between 60% the speed of light and 80% light. And then class 5, 5 basically takes you from 80% the speed of light to 90% the speed of light. And then 5B takes you from 90% the speed of light to just under the speed of light, arbitrarily close. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the last class would be class – I called it class 10 or class X. Um, those would be faster than light interstellar. So basically you're then using some technology like wormholes or Alcubier yeah, so, drives or something like this. So that's so it's very not different. relativistic anymore. That's right. Okay. Obviously, you think that perhaps other civilizations have gotten to this point or near it based on observed uh, interactions with something that appears to be, you know, not human and traveling and things. But what I don't know if you did it address was, um, do you think we'll do it eventually if we don't blow ourselves up? I, I would like to think we, we could. Um, the fact is we're trying and that's important. Um, the, you know, so this isn't just, this isn't just science fiction. This is, this is scientists trying to make the science fiction real. So right now we have the breakthrough Starshot program, you know, and the What's idea that? basically Oh go ahead. They're they're trying the goal is to send small probes basically the size of cell phones um, to Alpha Centauri um, by accelerating them up to about twenty percent the speed of light. So at at twenty percent the speed of light, you can get to Alpha Centauri in about in about twenty years. So our time, yeah, our time, yeah. So basically, the you know, so that's that's one of the one project that's ongoing. NASA has a goal to get the first probe to Alpha Centauri by twenty sixty nine, which would be the hundredth year, hundredth anniversary of the moon landing. So yes. this year is the this year is the fiftieth year. 50th year anniversary of the Apollo landings. So NASA is basically aiming to get our first probe to the nearest star system within the next 50 years, which is a great goal. I think it's a good idea. I think it's the next push we need to make. And How would you know if it got there? You're going to have to – they'll have to send signals back, and we'll have to wait four years for that signal to get here. (laughs) (laughs) So. Once it gets there, because if it's going that way, it's basically, you know, it, well, it's slowing the signal down by what, 20%? Uh, no, the speed of light will still be. Oh, it's, it's constant. Yeah, okay. The speed of light's constant. Yep. So that won't be an issue. But the, um, but it'll basically fly through the office entry system. You won't have a lot of time to take photos. It'll be <laughs> quick snapshots. <laughs> That'll be very difficult. So, so the fact is we're trying to become interstellar in the sense of sending probes so you know the 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 idea that i think at this point it's there are a good number of 
scientists who believe that there is probably life elsewhere in the universe and and very likely intelligent life elsewhere in the universe and and the fact is that you know we've you know we're an example of this so we do know it's possible and we do know that societies will try to be interstellar because we're trying to be interstellar so so we know that this we know that this would happen um, yeah well just out of self preservation too at a certain point exactly that's definitely definitely true so so it's it really does stand to reason that if there is anybody else out there you know they are very likely trying similar things and you know very well could succeed um well it, to go out on a limb do you uh, based uh, based on what we've been talking about here do you there you think there's a definite possibility that somebody has succeeded and we're seeing bits and pieces of it uh that would be speculation i it is speculation know, i mean i yeah uh, i would I, it, it's possible why not yeah. yeah i don't i don't think it's impossible well, yeah, it, sure. in the same way. Well, maybe that's what's going on here with uh, a lot of people in the sciences. They're thinking, well, this is possible, so why not Why not speculate about it and um, not be afraid to speculate about it? Because apparently what's apparently being observed would fit in with some of the, the speculation and some of these actual you know, the hypotheses that you're putting forward. So, Right. Well, certainly the accelerations are high enough. That's, that's for sure. And that, that's one of the things I – intended to discover by just doing some of these back of the envelope calculations based on observations, you know, as and and you know, while the observations may not be entirely, you know, dependable, but you know, at least this gives me some idea of yeah, what some yardstick. Of, when somebody says it went amazingly fast or <laughs> impossibly fast, and now now I know what they mean by impossibly fast. It clearly it wasn't impossibly fast because it happened, but it was but what do you mean by impossibly? How fast is that? And now, now I have some idea of how fast that was, you yes. know, based on what they saw. And, and so, well, I, I, apart from the fact that they had to move through atmosphere and things like that, and there well, was no sonic boom, and, of, yeah. that's a whole other host of interesting problems because the, you know, there are there are, people do not observe sonic booms, so this really. In a lot of people's scientists' minds, this this casts some doubt. Well, how could you have anything that could move through the air without sonic booms? And so I, I in fact, I had a discussion about this with my one of my colleagues, and he was, and he says I I find the whole thing very doubtful because you can't go through air without making that at Mach 15 without making a sonic boom. And and I said, well, but. So what do you doubt? Do you doubt the hypothesis or do you doubt the data? You're, you're saying you're telling me you're doubting the data, <laughs> and, yeah. and he and he says, "Well, I, I guess that's I guess that's true," and and um, that's that's just important to clarify. But I think that um, but I think the mindset's changing a good bit, and I think there's several reasons for it. If you think back to reflect back to 1947, which is when Kenneth Arnold. Um, saw the saucers near Mount Rainier. Mm -hmm. um, you had that the, just within two weeks of that, you had the Roswell incident, and then you had the other incident in Puget Sound. Um, so you had those three UFO incidents happening within a few weeks of each other, and I believe it was July of 1947. Yeah. Now, um, 1947, we're just out of World War II. Um, we 
do not have a space program at that point, or we have not, you know, we have nobody's put anything into orbit. You don't have Sputnik doesn't go up until 1957. So this is 10 years before Sputnik. Um, and the mentality, the, the mindset at that time was, was that space travel might not be possible. You know, mo- many scientists felt that space travel was not possible. Even in 1947, in fact, it was um, Sir Harold Spencer Jones, who was the Astronomer Royal of the UK, in 1957, two weeks be- two weeks before Sputnik orbited the Earth, he was quoted as saying, "Space travel is bunk." And so, <laughs> this is two weeks before Sputnik. Um, but it just it just highlights the mindset of of scientists at that time that they. Space travel was not on our minds, and um, and it was not clear that it would work. Now, now all of a sudden you have these you know these UFO things happen, and UFOs enter the the collective consciousness of American citizens at least in that in that year, and um, and their hypoth you know the hypothesis on the table was that these are extraterrestrial craft. Well, that's not going to fly with with scientists who are right now who are at that time thinking that space travel probably isn't possible so you know the mindset of 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 people at the time is space travel isn't space travel isn't necessarily possible in 1947 we didn't know a whole lot about the planets in our own solar system we knew what their atmospheres were like through spectrometry so Mm -hmm. we knew that they were different than earth and we knew that some of them were airless and some had air that wasn't breathable but we didn't know what the surfaces were like and we didn't know if there was life anywhere else we and um in fact we still don't know if there's life in our solar system you know we it's still not clear whether there's life on mars or not yeah so, um, or any of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn or whatever, where they're positing that it might happen. Exactly. So in 1947, this was not, you know, we didn't know about it. We didn't know about the planets in our own solar system. And then we didn't know whether other stars had planets. The first planets orbiting other stars weren't discovered until the early 1990s. And, um, right. And weren't really studied until the last 10 years. Um, so yeah, as the technology got better, yeah. So we, so the idea that there are, you know, beings traveling from other star systems to come to Earth, that is really far-fetched in 1947. Um, now, fast forward to 2019, and, you know, we know of about 4,000 planets orbiting other stars. We are starting to learn what their atmospheres are like. Um, we are... We have um, studied our own solar system. We've sent probes to most of the planet, you know, most of the major bodies in our on our own solar system, right. and we've sent people to the moon. You know, so we we ourselves have become space travelers since then, and now we can now revisit this question: Is it possible for you know other civilizations to visit Earth? Well. It's hard to rule that out when we're doing it and we're working to do it. So, so I think the mindset's changed, and I think that, you know, the the scientific advances in the last, uh, what is it since 1947? It's a long time. <laughs> seventy it is. years. Yeah. Yeah, seventy years. The scientific advances in the last seventy years are are great. Yeah. Our knowledge is is increased immensely. Yeah, it's ex- it's exponential at this point every year. 
and our mindset has changed dramatically and that and then that, that has been reinforced by science fiction mm-hmm. as well which has made us more comfortable with these ideas so it's um so i think that what you're seeing is you're seeing scientists approaching this with a slightly different mindset now that this is not this is not necessarily a thing of fantasy this is something to be looked into something to be checked for mm-hmm. And I think that's and that's entirely reasonable. Yeah, it's, it's not far fetched anymore. It may be half fetched, <laughs> <laughs> which right. is which is better than out of the question. One other point you made in um, in your lecture was that uh, because of the facts, the uh, the the mechanics of uh, interstellar um, uh, sublight travel, that communication would basically be useless because uh, well, can maybe you can explain that communicating uh. with each other. And communicating with Earth, like a, as in uh, even inadvertently, like with SETI, and you said, well, because of the mechanics, the uh, logistics, uh, the, the the physics involved, it's just kind of useless to, to communicate with radio waves or anything else. Could you explain that? Sure. Yeah. If you're if you're a traveler and you want to communicate with your fellow travelers, you're if you're a relativistic traveler, you're already traveling a reasonable percentage of the speed of light. So sending a message to someone using a light beam isn't going to give you a great advantage if you're <laughs> i mean you you're if you're traveling greater than 10% the speed of light then you know the light speed is less than an order of magnitude faster than you're going so it's not a huge advantage anymore to use light for communication um the the other reason is that you would have to wait you know a long time for that that light beam to travel and and be received by somebody and then be sent back to you. So mm-hmm. you'd be there far quicker than the message would ever get there. You're going to be there just after the message gets there, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Depending on how fast you're traveling. Right, so, right, okay. So there's really no point. Um, and <laughs> we're in the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so it's um I think that I guess I look at it this way: is in terms of a network, you know, there's nowhere, no, no use in using light. Light as a communication technique because sneaker net is just as fast, and so, if, <laughs> if, so you're better off just using sneaker net, and um, and also it may be safer too. I mean, you're not giving away your position or something like this. Although, although again, you're moving so fast that's not really an issue right. in the land. <laughs> as well so yeah so i don't i don't see that that communication using radio waves or lasers would be horribly useful to a society doing this mm-hmm. and um and so i don't expect that you'd there'd be a lot of communication going on that way right is there something that you haven't been asked or anything that you think i should be missing that is that i've been missing that's important to understanding what you're talking well, about a, because i get it i i think i get what you're talking about but what what do you think is a nagging question that people haven't asked that you're just like why don't they ask that question it seems so obvious to me huh that's a good question i don't there's nothing at this point that really stands out i think i covered most of the points i wanted to make in my talk and i so i think you've hit those questions have hit most of those points um, All right. Yeah. I mean, the, the most fascinating thing to me was one, everything's changing. So as we, you just mentioned, so that these kind of questions would be considered. 
And right. two, what, what which also fascinates me, which we talked about a little, was you know how does how does relativistic travel affect a civilization? What is it? To, what does it do to them? What is it? Well, how do their? How does it affect them socially? How does it affect um, their perception of themselves? How does it affect their language? You know, these things would be like 180 degrees alien to us because it would not be <laughs> exactly. within our, you know, would not be within our uh, experience to even conceptualize what what the what was normal to them. So, you know, it truly would be alien. So, you know, what if we are seeing what you're, you know, if we're seeing the effects of what you're talking about, I think, um, and this is kind of a hobby horse of mine, we're putting our own meanings on it because that's all we can do. <laughs> right. And I think that's, that's something I'm seeing now. And I'm in communication with several physicists who are interested in how, you know, some of the observed anomalous craft i'll call them for lack of a better word we right. don't know what they are apparently and you know, we need a word so we'll use that one <laughs> yeah so we you know the, so i'm in communication with several physicists who are brainstorming ways to make this you know to explain how these things work how these things could fly and um you know and this is this is really brainstorming at the, you know at the brainstorming level with you know without without a lot of serious calculations because we're just trying to figure out how could something like this fly? How could you, how could you tear through the atmosphere at Mach 15 and not, and not dump, um, you know, kilotons of TNT of heat energy into the atmosphere, right? Right. <laughs> and, and this is the things you worry about as a physicist. And mm -hmm. um, so, so one of the things that I am finding is that because we're short of ideas and short of experience, we there aren't that many ideas on the table, and a lot of these ideas are are really formed from science fiction. So you have, hmm. you know, a lot of people who are insist, no, this has to be some kind of warp drive. This has to be this. This has to be that. And, and people very quickly, even scientists quickly, are getting locked into certain ways of thinking. And and I was surprised that this idea of, a, you know, even this, you know, the, the idea of faster than light travel, I mean, a lot, like I had mentioned earlier, a lot of scientists have gotten locked into this idea that these things have to go faster than light. And, and, and I really don't think that that's productive to rule out possibilities at this point. In fact, we, you know, if you did have travelers coming here, there could be travelers from different civilizations with different technologies. And so you don't right. know, you don't, some of these craft could work one way, another set of these craft would work a different way. And um, to get our heads around this, you have to keep your, keep your options on the table. And I think that, I think that that's important, but I'm finding that a lot of people are having trouble doing that. And so that, that's interesting. But one thing, I guess one thing we haven't talked about that I have had questions about is I've had questions from, I, I wrote an article in the online journal, The Conversation, about a year ago now. Mm -hmm. um, this is how I basically threw myself into this fray. Um, <laughs> Which I hope you're not sorry about it yet. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry. I, I actually, this is, it's been great fun and and. You know, quite thought-provoking. I've I've learned a lot, and I'm very interested in this. Um, well, it's a playground, you know. I mean, this is what you got into it for, so it is. Well, I, I look at it this way. You know, if it's if if you do have if you do have a situation where you have extraterrestrial craft coming to Earth, for one, you're going to want to know about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Two. 
you're going to want to know what they're like and what what their tech capabilities are and what their intentions are. Mm-hmm. Those are those would be important to us. And then and then three, it would be one of the biggest scientific discoveries in history. So if it would be stupid to just not look at it at all, right? <laughs> um, yes. You know, I had. You I think had, that would I, be obvious and obvious all the way back through the history of science, but it's only become more easy to talk about seemingly maybe in the last 10 years, or if you want to be conservative, even less than that. And I think that's, again, because our mindset's changed and it's yeah. we've come to realize that this really is a possibility. Um, you know, my, my advisor in graduate school had – I don't remember what his project was. He was working on a project with a colleague at one point in the 1960s, and I think they were looking at neutrinos or something from the sun, or and they were trying to study something having to do with the sun's surface, and they were having problems because they found that the sun's surface was vibrating, hmm. and they couldn't get the data they wanted because the sun's surface was vibrating, so they they didn't publish their results, and they abandoned the project. And then as my advisor told me the story, and then he said, and then several years later, somebody else discovered that the surface of the sun was vibrating, and they got the Nobel Prize for inventing the field of astro seismology. Right? <laughs> they didn't and, like the data, so they ignored it. Is that what you're saying? That's it. Yeah. yeah. He he, <laughs> he he told me, and he told me he goes, I've been kicking myself for years because we we knew that. <laughs> way before these other people did and they got the Nobel Prize and and he said but that's a classic story of not you know of one person's one person's signal is another person's noise you know or you know and and yeah. you know or ignoring a phenomenon because you weren't interested in studying it and he said he said that's it's not a smart thing to do and so please don't make this mistake and he but he told us this story is a you know a you know, let my life be a warning <laughs> to you, <laughs> basically. And I've always kind of carried that with me. And I, and and I guess I look at it this way: you know, if you have a, if you have a situation where you do have extraterrestrial craft coming to Earth, why not study it? You know, it's not it's it's and it's and it would be it shouldn't take too much effort to either prove that it's nonsense. That it's all nonsense, or to prove that there's really something there in some cases. You know, of course, of course, not all UFO sightings are alien spacecraft. That's certainly not the case. Yeah, and they may and, have, um, none of them may be alien spacecraft, but you, you none know, you of got, them may be alien spacecraft. So but you, you got to keep those options open. But it could be that there are a handful that are, and uh-huh. you're going to want to catch. I would like to catch those, so that would yeah. be interesting to me. So, so I have had so I, so I wrote that article and um. And I and I was very careful in writing it. I was very careful in you know not claiming anything to be true that isn't tr- known to be true, and um, and I was careful how I worded things. And um, but I was still expecting a good deal of backlash. And and instead, I got the, quite the opposite. I got quite a few emails from scientists saying, "Bravo, you know, somebody's need to needed to say this for a long time." Hmm. And you know, I was really pleased to get emails like that. Or then I would get emails basically saying that or say, I've been interested in this for years. You know, is there any way we can study that? If you want to work together, I would be happy to collaborate. You know, <laughs> what, can, what can we do? You know, I've, you know, 
can we brainstorm some ideas on how do we study this easily? And and I think for scientists, this, the hardest part is the fact that it is incredibly difficult to study phenomena that you can't control. Yes. I was selling a T-shirt that I made up recently. It says repeatable but not on demand. And there's a <laughs> there's a, a size symbol, a UFO, and a Bigfoot on it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that sums it up. That's exactly that's exactly it. You gotta wait till they show up. Yeah. You know, if you study supernova, you have to wait till there's a supernova. Now, you know, if supernova happened once every thousand years, nobody would believe they were real. Mm-hmm. That would be the situation because you they was wouldn't be observed. Now, fortunately, they are observed in other galaxies. You, they're bright enough you can see them in other galaxies. So, so they do happen if every couple of years. You get a supernova that people then can study. But if it was much rarer, you know, we wouldn't know about supernova. And um, and so I think these are important things to realize. And as a scientist, you're then faced with, well, how do you study something that's really rare like this? And, um, and it's got you know, so much so, baggage, too. It's got a whole lot of cultural baggage that supernova well, and sprites in the atmosphere do not carry. That's right. Yeah, that's the that's the other real big problem with this is that there's so much there's so much it's fair, it's taboo, and so it's almost dangerous to study this. And so to get serious scientists involved is really difficult. But I think as you get some scientists involved and vocal, that there will be others following because there are there there's a potential discovery here. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe it won't pan out. It's very possible it won't pan out. Maybe nobody comes here. That's possible too. <laughs> and you could have civilizations all over the galaxy with nobody coming here. That that's you know, and so it would be sad, but that would might be the case. Yeah, but, but you but might I mean, discover something inadvertently, even if that's not going on. That's true. Yeah. So which would so be just I, as important. So I'm trying to brainstorm, you know, ways to ways to handle this, and I was very excited when I. Went to Alabama to see that Philippe uh, Alaris. Yeah, yeah, from uh, from uh, uh, ESA. Space yeah, he was from the European Space Agency. Was giving a talk on using satellites to image UFOs, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I and I had actually given that some thought before before you know, with like about a year ago, and I actually had looked into this and I tried it in one case. I had picked out a. There was a black triangle that was witnessed over, um, I think it's Bellingham Bay, north of Seattle, mm-hmm. in June of nineteen or two thousand seventeen. And um, yeah, I think you mentioned this. And um, at the conference, I contacted a colleague of mine who works for a satellite company, which I won't name, but they, I asked her if she could try to get me some satellite images of that that bay. Um, at that time, at that yeah yeah exact time. And um, and she was very skeptical. She was actually a postdoc of mine, and she was like, "Oh, I'm horribly skeptical about this." And I said, "Well, do me a favor. <laughs> if you're, a, I said, if you're a scientist, you won't worry about the hypothesis. You'll just get the data, and mm-hmm. then we analyze the data, <laughs> and then you won't be skeptical. Yes, <laughs> you will either, we'll either know whether there was something there or not." It, it should be really easy to determine from satellite imagery. So, especially because it's probably very large and be, it'd be very easy to see it on satellite imagery. That's right. Yeah, the person had described it as big as a house, which I don't know how big that is. Houses vary in size, yes. so. <laughs> but you can see a house from space very easily. So, but I knew that if it was forty feet across, they would be able to see it. So, 
so she worked to get the imagery for me and um she had a hard time getting the images because there were several engineers she had asked to retrieve the images for me. They basically said, oh, I don't believe in UFOs, so I'm not going to bother. Ooh, shouldn't have told them it was a UFO. They were just asked for the imagery. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> but it reminded, me, it reminded me very much of the bishops who were unwilling to look through Galileo's telescope. Yes. You know, and so much so that, you know, bit, get, Galileo was very distraught by that. He had gathered some bishops to to have him look through the telescope to look at the moon to see that the moon wasn't featureless, you know, to see the faces of Venus. And um, the bishops refused to look, and, and Galileo wrote a letter to Kepler hmm. and said, Oh, Kepler, what do we make of the learned men here who, with the pertinacity of the asp, steadfastly refused to cast a glance through the telescope? Shall we laugh or shall we cry? You know, he was clearly <laughs> upset. He clearly, thought, he clearly thought they were, you know, it was amusing that they wouldn't bother to look, but he was very depressed about it. And um, and that's kind of how I felt here. I, I I get why they don't want to bother, but at the same time, just get the image and see what's there. You know, if there's nothing there, you can. I am happy for you to tell me I told you so. <laughs> yeah, no, so no harm, please, no foul. Go right ahead. Please tell me I told you so. Yeah. I just want to verify whether there was a craft in the in the sky. And so, so she did. So she finally contacted me. After a few weeks, she contacted me. She goes, "Do you have Do you have clearance?" And I said, "No, I don't have clearance." And she said, "Huh? Well, I can't give you those images." <laughs> I said, why is that? You're a private company. Why yeah. is that? And she said, she said, well, those images were purchased by the U.S. government and they have been classified. And I said, huh, so how do you feel about skepticism now? <laughs> she said, yeah. She goes, I've never seen anything like this happen. <laughs> she goes, this is weird. And I said, yeah, it is weird. Yes, yes. But, but I took that as a success. It was a success because clearly there's something in those images that somebody didn't want other people to see mm -hmm. for whatever reason. I don't know why. You know, it could have been a U.S. craft and they were doing a test. Yeah. Something got off course, whatever it is. Whatever it is. I don't – I can't possibly interpret what was there because I can't see the images. But, but, I, but it told me that such a technique should work. You know, I, I guess I inferred that – there's a possibility those images are classified because that craft was in the air. There was a craft in the air that, you know, and and maybe, you know, it just gave me gave me the the um, confidence that this this technique should work. You should be able to get satellite images of observed yeah um, anomalous craft, and we can look at them. Yeah, that's what yeah. Philippe was talking about in his presentation. I'm try I tried to get him on the show, and he said that he'd um, uh, he might do it some other time because he's busy. But um, the fascinating thing was that he said that their imagery, when they get all their satellites up, will be open source, um, un that's unless <laughs> unless uh, a right. government says uh, we'd rather you didn't in this area or something like that. I see. I see. Yeah, so I'm so I'm hopeful that 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 should very quickly resolve most cases. You know, most cases at least in, taken in daylight or you know at night with infrared. If there's infrared imagery that where you can pick up an object or not. Yeah, um, because if I it's over, that, you know, if it's over what Burma or something, maybe they have no jurisdiction to tell you you can't see that or not. 
That's right. So, or the oceans. Or the oceans, yeah, exactly. Even even more so. Yeah, so, you know, you've got all the tic-tacs, the tic-tac craft that were observed by the Nimitz group coming, you know, they'd appear south of Catalina Island and move southward. You know, why not image, just get the satellite imagery off Catalina. Mm-hmm. Watch it. Just watch it. See what happens. You know, yeah. See if you can see them. Yeah. Well, we probably already know what would happen if you asked for that imagery. <laughs> <laughs> well, on those dates, probably. But, yeah. but, you know, maybe there are other dates when the Nimitz carrier group wasn't there when you right. did have have these things showing up and we could actually observe some of this or exactly you know or maybe you could if you could get imagery for those regions you know maybe somebody's already done this um but it's probably maybe classified but you could get imagery of that area where fravor encountered the tic tac and they had the thing that was submerged underwater but you just go back in time to figure out to see if the thing you can get any other images of that thing submerged underwater to find out what it is. That would yeah. be interesting too. Before they got there, after they left, whatever. That's right. So there's a there's a lot of possibilities with satellite imagery, mm-hmm. and um, and that's exciting. The other the other ideas, um, you know, I was I was talking to someone about my ideas, and one of my colleagues says, "Oh, don't give all your good ideas away. You know, somebody will scoop you." And I, you know, this is always a worry in science, right? Yeah, it's a worry in any field, actually. Any field, but but I said, you know, let them scoop me. I I don't care. I don't care about being the guy to get the data. I if somebody else is willing to do it, I'm happy to have another scientist do it. So please <laughs> steal these ideas. Do it. Beat me to it. That that is you. a rare and wonderful <laughs> attitude, and I think things would have progressed a lot faster if that was the case with you well, know with most people. And I think in this case, you need we need some progress in this area because this is really potentially important and you know and that would be it would be great to have other scientists involved so mm-hmm. so i think one of the other possibilities is to look at right now we have an all sky network the, the all sky fireball network so these are upward facing cameras that are watching for for meteors coming into our atmosphere yeah um they have automated software to try to tra- pick out meteors and track them and separate them from airplanes and such. But I don't know the details, but, you know, if you did have a, a lighted craft come in, um, you might be able to detect that. And I have a friend that is doing that very thing with uh, in the San Luis Valley. He's got uh, three cameras going with the software to determine if something's a bird or an aircraft or something like that, hopefully, and, and – and, uh, uh, weed those out, and if it does detect something that looks like it's not any of those things, all kinds of equipment starts running. Um, oh, nice! Spectrographs and uh, video, high high def video. I think they got two K video. I think they want to get four K because that'd be even better. But um, yeah, that's, that's Chris O'Brien. It's called the San Luis Valley uh, Project. I also think that uh, oh, uh, the the cinematographer Douglas Trumbull is also involved in a project like that as well. Awesome. Yeah, and and then if you but if we can tap into the data that already exists, you know, that have been recorded by the the ongoing network that that NASA had used, that would be excellent too. It would be that's another possibility for a data set to mine, right? And to look for things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you said an hour, and we've been on for almost an hour twenty. Uh, I think oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah, well, <laughs> there, you got interested in talking to me, which was why what I was trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, this is a great fun. And uh, I yeah, I don't I don't have a whole lot of other ideas. I wish I did. I don't know how well, to study things that 
you can't control whether they're there or not. That's a hard thing to do. So it's hard. And, you know, kudos to people who are saying, look, this data is here. It's just not, you know, it's not on demand, but it, it's still data. So we have to deal with it. That's true. Uh, and uh, the other thing that impressed me, when, you know, I asked, actually, I asked Rich uh, Hoffman when he was on the show. I said, what are some of the uh, presentations really stuck out to you? And he said, Dr. Knuth is uh, one that really fascinated me. And I felt the same way because one of the first things you said when you came up is you said, I don't think anybody's really talked about this before. And you were right. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to hear that. Which is why um, I was excited when you said, yeah, I'll come on and talk about uh, my talk and um, my, my ideas here in this area. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Knuth or Kevin, what do you want, whatever you want me to call you. Yeah, please call me Kevin. That's uh, fine. All right. And um, as these things progress, uh, maybe you can come back on and we'll talk a bit more uh, if you find out some more things. And um, this is exactly the direction I want to be going in with this show. What I said a few years ago was that I wish UFO study would go away and scientists and professionals would take over and start looking at it with their tools and their um, their training. And this is what's happening. And it's almost frightening to me. And it's wonderful. So <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I think I think once you get scientists involved, you won't be able to stop it and it will it will progress. I the, the other thing to too, that people don't always keep in mind is that the military studies that have gone on military studies are not scientific studies they have different goals they have different objections and they use different techniques and i right. think that's that's and and the data isn't shareable and that's a big problem so right. they're not the same mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're not going to find out nearly as much or really you're not going to find all they want to know if it's it's a threat or if it's exploitable <laughs> They don't particularly want to know how it works, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if you're if you're only concerned about whether it's a threat or exploitable, you're you're missing a big part of the picture, which could provide valuable information. Mm-hmm. That, and so, well, that that is changing. You're part of that change, and thank you so much for coming on and giving a little bit of your time to talk about it. Well, thank you very much for having me. Every guest gets to pick the music for the end of the show. Do you have anything you want to hear or you want me to play at the end here while we... Uh, oh, I, I really enjoyed your introduction. That was a lot of fun. And so I trust you to pick some good music. Okay, I'll pick, I'll pick something. <laughs> All right, thank you. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Uh, and uh, let's keep in touch. All right, sounds okay. good. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen... The following is a recording received at our London Observatory from somewhere in outer space. Presenting the Moon Billies. It was sad, so sad. It was sad, so bad. We'll follow the great planet Earth. Now come all you space creatures and listen to our song. A story of the mighty Earth and what they did so wrong. They hung there in outer space, they were our closest friend. Until they built their atom bomb, then it was their end. It was sad, so sad, it was bad, so bad. The fall of that great planet Earth. We watched them in our telescopes, they had such funny ways. They drove around in gas machines on things they call freeways. Their women, they were pretty, their men were brave and true. But they wouldn't trust each other, and now their world is through. It was sad, so sad, it was bad, so bad. 
We tried so hard to warn them, but heed they would not take. We sent our spaceships down to them, but they were called a fake. Oh, how sad their ending, their doom we could not stop. They built their bombs and rockets, and then they blew their top. It was sad, so sad, it was bad, so bad, the fall of that great planet Earth. Oh, if there is another world a listening to this song, please take our advice to you and stop the ways of wrong. Build your world on trust and love and not on fear and hate. And take a lesson from the earth and do not share their fate. It was sad, so sad, it was bad.